Hello, I'm Rolf Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 92, Lifting the Veil, Esoteric Reading in Clements Stromates. In the last episode, we looked at how Clement of Alexandria writes esoterically, intentionally scattering what he sees as deeper truths throughout the work. In this episode, we shall look at the ways in which he reads esoterically. That is how he finds truths scattered throughout the works of his chosen lineage of authorities. And because Clement actually identifies several lineages, all of which partake of a kind of philosophia perennis, but all of which nevertheless need to be distinguished in various ways, the first task of this episode will be to try to come up with an anatomy of the wisdom traditions in Clement. We'll then turn to his methods reading these traditions and finally discuss what were or might have been the esoteric doctrines he was so concerned with concealing from the unlearned masses. I take it that the Schwepp listenership does not belong to such masses, but are rather made up of a Gnostic elite, and so I have no compunction about revealing the secrets. Be advised, though, that the deepest secrets may in fact be scattered throughout this episode so that any lapses in our style of delivery, grammar, or indeed any mistakes whatsoever are of course not mistakes at all, but rather pointers toward a concealed nugget of esoteric truth. So let's look at lineage in Clement of Alexandria, first of all. Now, unlike the middle Platonist perennialists we've looked at in the podcast, Philo in a way, Plutarch also in a way, Apuleius and Numenius, not to mention Celsus, whom we haven't covered yet, but we shall do. He's also a second century Platonist of some kind. Clement does not situate what has been called strong authority by George Boystones in the distant past. For the Middle Platonists, the fairly constant benchmarks of truth, the canon in both the current usage of the term and in the Hellenistic philosophical usage, meaning something like the yardstick or criterion by which truth may be measured. The canon is found basically in two places. The first is, of course, Plato. Often Plato conceived of as a Pythagorean or read alongside a Pythagorean tradition, which we moderns think is actually a post-Platonic development, very much reliant on Plato. So we might say that the Middle Platonists took the extended Plato or the Platonic Pythagorean tradition as the source for really sound doctrines, for strong authority, for the kind of truth that you just can't deny. The other benchmark was, as we saw, for example, in episode 8 of the podcast, and also with Plutarch and Numenius's appropriation of barbarian wisdom, the supposed teachings of the ancient wise nations. So the Egyptians always seem to make these lists of wise ancient barbarians, along with the Chaldeans, the Indian Brahmins, and a shifting range of other people as options. We even saw the Jews make the cut in Numenius. What these nations have in common to the Platonist mind is that their ancient founding heroes, or nomothetes, or what have you, were philosophers who expressed truths in esoteric ways in, for example, their religious myths. Now, there's a third major stream of strong authority open to Platonist philosophers, which could be drawn on for esoteric truths, the Greek so-called theological poets, Hesiod, Homer, 
Orpheus, etc. And later on, you have new uh, theological poetic revelations like the Chaldean oracles, which you can add to this canon. But these feature much more in post-Plotinian Platonism than they do in Middle Platonism. So from the 3rd century onward is when these poets really become a major, important, even central source of theological wisdom. So we haven't devoted too much attention to them yet in the podcast, beyond setting the stage. But do see episode 26 for a lot of hopefully useful insights on the way Homer, for example, was read as a universal sage. Philo of Alexandria, as always, is something of a special case because he's an Abrahamic Middle Platonist. But again, his works of Moses are conceived of as immemorially ancient and products of the Jews, to whom Philo, of course, grants preeminent wise barbarian status. Clement, as we shall see, adopts all three of these sources of wisdom, but he differs from any traditional philosophic Platonist in also adopting a really quite different and recent stream of textual and oral authority, the Christian scriptures, alongside the esoteric oral teachings delivered by Jesus, especially after his resurrection, when he took some of the apostles aside for an advanced session of secret doctrine, passed on by the apostles, and taught by the elders, a privileged group of teachers within the early church. This is really interesting to us because it could reflect historical reality. If we take the case of Homer read as a theologian, no one today is going to read Homer and and buy this for a second. We might agree that there are no solid rules of interpretation and that there is no one who can take the late Platonists to task for reading Homer as though he were an esoteric authority on theology, metaphysics, and a bunch of subsidiary realms of expertise. Meaning is crafted at the point of reading, not of writing, or at least not only of writing. So readers will always find what they want to find in a text. With this, this sort of thing is very well known, well understood in modern literary theory. But what I mean to say is no modern scholar is going to read Homer, knowing what we do about Bronze Age Hellenic society and so forth, and say, wow, Homer really was a Platonist avant la lettre. It's so obvious now. How did I not see it before? I guess I needed Porphyry or Proclus to give me the secret hermeneutic key. That kind of reading is just not open, I'd say, to modern thinkers. However, many modern scholars really think that Clement was the recipient of genuine oral teachings, transmitted, if not from the apostles themselves, well, let's say from apocalyptic strands of late Second Temple Judaism. Guy Stromsa is a good example here, quote, Christianity made a bold claim. It offered salvation to all and sundry. Despite this claim, however, esoteric traditions inherited from Palestinian and Hellenistic Judaism formed the basis of secret oral traditions in the earliest stages of the new religion. These traditions, some of which can be detected already in Jesus' teaching, remained in existence during the first Christian centuries. Although these traditions, oral by nature, became blurred in the following period, it's still possible to retrace them. End of quote. In other words, we may well be dealing with a genuine, on-the-ground, esoteric tradition in the case of Clement of Alexandria. And we only know of the existence of this tradition because Clement and a few other early thinkers like Origen tell us in a guarded way that it exists. 
So the first thing for us to do is take another look at the elders. Clement refers in book one of the Strom to his own education, saying that the Strom is composed as an aide-memoire for what these guys taught him. This passage from book one is worth quoting in Ferguson's translation. Quote, This work is not a writing rhetorically shaped for exhibition. It is a collection of memoranda, a treasure for my old age, a remedy against forgetfulness, a mere reflection, a sketch of vividly alive originals. Words I was thought worthy to hear and blessed and genuinely memorable men from whom I heard them. One of these, an Ionian, came from Greece, the remainder from the Greek dispersion. One from Koile Syria, one from Egypt, others from the East, one from among the Assyrians, one a Jew by birth from Palestine. I fell in with a final one, supreme in mastery. I tracked him down to his hiding place in Egypt and stayed with him. He was the true Sicilian bee, culling out of the flowers from the meadow of prophets and apostles, a pure substance of true knowledge in the souls of his hearers. End of quote. Now, the Sicilian bee is probably Pantinus, Clement's Alexandrian teacher. Now, we know Clement got a traditional philosophical education from somewhere in his early years because he shows great familiarity with Platonist and also Stoic and other doctrines. He even knows about Epicureans, even though he thinks they're just atheists. And we might be tempted to read this list that he's just given of, of teachers particularly as it's mostly made up of Hellenes, as a bunch of traditionally religious philosophical teachers, followed by Pentinus, who was a Christian, and who set Clement on the right path. Incidentally, uh, Clement's encomium of Pentinus that we've just read echoes Euripides's Hippolytus. So this gives us an example in passing of just how Hellenized Clement can be casually. But the remainder of this passage calls this interpretation into question, quoting again, But they preserved the true tradition of the blessed doctrine in direct line from Peter, James, John, and Paul, the holy apostles, son inheriting from father, only few sons are like their fathers, and came with God's help to plant in us those seeds of their apostolic progenitors. End of quote. Nice. So these guys are not a bunch of traditional philosophers. They are the lineage passing on teachings which go back to Jesus himself, it is implied, or certainly back to the apostles who knew Jesus face to face at any rate. Note how Clement is framing his work here, right at the beginning, as a mere collection of jottings to spur the memory. Now he later completely contradicts this summary, as we saw last time, saying that the Stromates is a work of esoteric exposition treating of the innermost doctrines of Christianity for the Gnostic readers. So this introduction in Book 1 is a bit of misdirection, among other things, because it's saying that this book is just a collection of jottings from my teachers to serve as a prop for my memory in old age so I don't forget their wonderful wisdom, while later on he tells us, no, this is an intentionally scattered work of esoteric philosophy. This is also Clement, perhaps in good faith, laying out his own intellectual lineage and kind of mentioning his teachers. But note that he basically frames them all as being passers-on of 
secret apostolic wisdom. Now, as we shall see, the boundaries of apostolic wisdom in Clement may be slightly less rigid than we would expect them to be on the face of it. So it may be that indeed some of these, or perhaps all of these teachers up to Pantinus were what we would call traditionally religious philosophic teachers, or at least some of them were. But Clement is saying that their wisdom, in its essence, is apostolic. Okay, Clement is constructing something we have not yet seen in Middle Platonism, an esoteric, authoritative teaching tradition of recent vintage. In fact, one that only goes back about a century and a half at the maximum to the life of Jesus. This tradition, we learn in other passages, is a paradosis, an oral teaching transmitted alongside the exoteric teachings, which are your basic Christian doctrines as found in the scriptures or in works like Clement's own Pedagogos. Now, this recent minting of the Christian tradition comes under attack from Celsus, the traditionally religious 2nd century Platonist, whom we shall discuss when we get to the 3rd century thinker, Origen, since all we know of Celsus and his anti-Christian polemic is what Origen tells us in the process of rebutting him. And it's also the kind of attack we find in Porphyry much later in the 3rd century. Lots of other evidence, too, lets us know that outside observers saw this Christian thing as totally parvenu, lacking in precisely the authority which antiquity gave in the ancient worldview. Incidentally, Lilla, the scholar of Clement, thinks that Clement must have read Celsus, since his apologetics in the Stromates answer so many of Celsus's attacks, but this is speculative. I think a lot of the attacks Celsus draws on are just simply typical of the broader um, intellectual respect for antiquity that we find in Greco-Roman thought. Roman anti-Christians would often take the line that as bad as the Jews were, and they were pretty bad for their intransigence and their tendency to sedition against the state, they were at least admirably true to their ancestral traditions, which is something a Roman could respect. The Christians, on the other hand, were just as bad as the Jews, but they were also betrayers of the ancient Jewish traditions, and thus they had really nothing to recommend them. Anyway, philosophic Christians, like Clement, were concerned to oppose this claim that they were new kids on the block. And one way of doing this was to make Christianity into a perennial truth, which Clement does in a number of ways. So let's look at the larger perennial tradition which Clement constructs to see if we can get into how he integrates this esoteric Christian paradosis within that context, sort of making it ancient even though it's not historically ancient. This will also let us see more clearly how he differentiates the Christian tradition from its competitors, because he does do this very strongly. As we saw in episode 90, the Logos teaches the truth to all mankind or all those with the proper philosophic stroke, spiritual gifts to receive the truth. Christians, of course, have the advantage over anyone else because they accept the Logos' most important teaching, namely his incarnation as Christ on earth as a human being. And the Christians have his teachings in their purest form because Christ, while he was on earth, actually gave teachings in the form of parables, in the form of sermons, and also in the form of his esoteric doctrines that he gave to the apostles. But everyone in principle 
can access the Logos, which, as we saw, is a lover of mankind and freely offers his teachings to humans. So that's the mechanism by which truth becomes available to the tradition at large. In principle, a priori, everyone has access to the Logos, everyone who at least uses their divine gift of reason properly. However, Christians have other advantages over non-Christians as well. Clement strongly positions Christianity as the true Judaism. In other words, the entire ancient tradition of Jewish scripture is in fact Christian scripture, and so can be drawn on for serious antique authority in his time. By virtue of being the culmination of the Hebrew tradition, in other words, Christianity automatically has an ancient pedigree. And as we mentioned in the last two episodes, a lot of the stromates is devoted to an outline of the history of truth, whereby everyone else stole their wisdom or plagiarized their wisdom from the philosophy of the Jews, which is to be found expressed esoterically in the books of Moses and elsewhere in what we call the Old Testament. So there's a funny tension in Clement's thought here, because why should the Logos, being this lover of mankind that he is, favor the Jews stroke Christians so much more than everyone else? And why is access to the deepest truths so exclusive to the Christian Gnostic elite? It's hard to reconcile these two facets of Clement's tradition in a bald, logical way, like I've just phrased it, but it kind of works rhetorically in his work. Clement, now emphasizing that the Greeks, especially Plato, may have had direct access to the truth through the Logos and through their natural reason, which sort of can receive truth from the Logos, when he's stressing universality of the true philosophy, i.e. Christianity. But at other times, when he's in apologetic mode, he points out that the Hellenes, and again, notably Plato, simply plagiarized their doctrines from the Mosaic philosophy. Interesting in the context of this cognitive dissonance within Clement's thought is the fact that Clement is seriously eclectic when it comes to constructing his larger tradition. He is, in fact, a full-on perennialist and an esoteric perennialist to boot. So what do we mean by this esoteric perennialism? A wide range of authorities, I mean really wide, Homer, Hellenic philosophers, Egyptian temple builders, ancient Pythagoreans, you name it, can be drawn on for the truth. But they're all expressing the truth esoterically in enigmata and symbola. We have seen these two terms before in the podcast, and episode 26 is a good place to start if you're totally unfamiliar with them. Enigmata are riddles in the most basic meaning of the word, but as a technical term of discourse, the word enigma refers to an esoteric mode of expression. And this technical meaning was really developed by Stoicism, but then taken on by Middle Platonism and becomes a standard of Middle Platonists when they want to find Platonist-style doctrines hidden in things like, for example, the Isis and Osiris myth. So Homer will be talking about a battle, but this is really an enigma for the struggles of the human soul against its baser nature. This is the sort of thing we're talking about with enigmata. Enigma is the most common term for esoteric discourse in Middle and Late Platonism across the board, but symbolon is a close second. But symbolon really takes off with Clement, in my view. He uses this term, which earlier authors normally associate only with Pythagoreans and or the Egyptians specifically. Clement uses it in all manner of contexts, as meaning roughly the same thing as enigma. 
Now, obviously, if anything we find in an ancient poet, or in a bit of Egyptian temple architecture, or in, say, Euripides, as well as in the, the scriptures, can be read as a symbolon or an enigma, it's no real problem to find esoteric Christian truths in these sources. So starting with the Greeks, who exactly uses these modes of esoteric discourse, according to Clement? Well, the founders of the mystery cults, being philosophers, quote, buried their doctrines in myths so as not to be obvious to all. So here we have the fairly normal uh, middle Platonist adoption of the mysteries esoterically interpreted as a source for philosophic wisdom. We also have the poets. Just as in traditional Platonism, Homer and the other greats are a superb source for esoteric wisdom, despite Plato's own attacks on the poets in the Republic, which the later Platonist tradition seems to have forgotten about or found ways around. We have in Clement oracles, that is, traditional polytheist oracles, as a source of wisdom. And this is really interesting. Clement even wants to absorb traditional divination forms into his canon, something that very few Christians would do. The most common positions being either that the oracles are just false and people are deluding themselves when they think they tell the future, or if the oracles do genuinely predict the future, it's because demons are behind the scenes running the show so as to seduce humans into following them in the guise of the many gods of traditional religions rather than the one true god of Christianity. So either oracles are of no account, or oracles work, but it's because they're run by demons. Either way, not a good source for wisdom. But no, says Clement, oracles can also be read as sources of esoteric truth, even of revealed truth. But they must, of course, be read esoterically. Plato and other great philosophers, of course, notably Pythagoras, also express the truth. And Pythagoras, for Clement, speaks esoterically as a matter of course. The mystique of esotericism surrounding the name of the great Pythagoras is present to the hilt in the Stromates. And Clement preserves for us many wonderful Pythagorean cryptic sayings, the so-called symbola. See our special episode on Book 5 of the Stromates for many examples of this. And see episode 18 of the podcast for Pythagorean silence and secrecy as a trope. Turning to the so-called barbarian philosophy. The barbarians, too, have all the esoteric wisdom we've come to expect from Middle Platonist Orientalism. To take one example, the Egyptian sphinxes, which stand before their temples, are a symbol, a symbolon, of the enigmatic and obscure character of religious discourse. The sphinxes propound enigmatic doctrines, such as love and fear of God, simultaneously existing in the human breast, because they are themselves ambivalent figures, being half-beasts and half-humans. So, a very interesting reading of temple architecture. Countless examples of this kind of reading of culture are to be found in the treasure trove that is the Stromates, but we're going to leave it to the listener to seek out more examples. For now, we should just sum up in our words by saying that Clement has a strongly perennialist approach. One is tempted to say that the strongest surviving statement of perennialism from the second century, I can't think of a, a more eclectic and all-encompassing reading of culture than we find in Clement. And in Clement's words from Book 5 of the Stromates, quote, Thus one can say that both the barbarians and the Greeks, who have dealt with God, have hidden the principles of things and have transmitted the truth 
through riddles, symbols, allegories, metaphors, and other similar figures, for instance, divination among the Greeks. End of quote. Book 5 really is a tour de force of perennialist esotericism. If you haven't read it and are a lover of the theory and practice of esoteric writing, read it immediately. There is an amazing description of enigma and symbola, and Clement really sort of defines his terms of esoteric discourse here, so there's the theory part. Then a special section on the symbola of the Pythagoreans. Then there follows the arithmological meaning of the Hebrew tabernacle and its furniture, which we shall discuss a bit later in this episode. Then Clement turns to the Egyptians, then the symbolic style used by philosophers and poets, then a disquisition on the reasons for this practice of veiling the truth, the familiar reasons of philosophic stroke spiritual elitism discussed in the last episode. Then we get to the Christian apostles' opinions on the veiling of the mysteries of the faith, where Christianity is framed as the true mysteries. And then Clement moves on to apophatic matters in a passage full of the paradox of revealing the unrevealable, discussing the fact that God cannot be spoken because he transcends all human thought and language as a reason why we need to hide our discussions of God under veils of secrecy. It's an amazing book, so check it out, and check out the next episode for more on the apophatic material in Book 5. Now, with such a universal esoteric tradition to draw on, you almost wonder why Clement needs the scriptures at all. But the fact is the Stromatase is made up, more than anything else, of lavish quotations from the New and Old Testaments, as well as some semi-canonical Jewish-Christian and Christian works, sometimes coming thick and fast in a bewildering array of out-of-context one-liners. He's very happy to do that a lot of the time. Sometimes whole passages of scripture subjected to minute exegesis point by point, often with a bit of Hellenic wisdom brought in for corroboration, and so on. And it's clear for a number of reasons that for Clement, the Christian scriptures, which include the Jewish scriptures as we've mentioned, are the source of truth par excellence. And this is really interesting because it's something new, the way he approaches these texts. One of the special things about Christianity is the style of its scriptures. The New Testament is written in a very simple, unadorned, in fact, rather boorish, agroikos style of Koine Greek. The Koine was the common dialect used across the Roman world, as opposed to the many dialects from different cities like the Attic or the Laconic and so forth. This was, this was sort of the common Greek that had evolved in the Hellenistic period. Now, these scriptures are not fine literature, a fact which is not lost on opponents of Christianity, who fastened onto the fact that these fanatics of this new crazy movement were really into a bunch of texts that read like they were written by untalented school kids. And this is very unique, to be taken seriously as a source of authority in a Hellenic context. You normally had to adopt established Hellenic forms with considerable literary sophistication behind them. You might adopt the hexameter poem, as for example in the Chaldean Oracles, which is a second century work sort of placing itself in the canon of theological poetry. Um, and became a very strong source of authority in later Platonism, as we know. Or you might write in the mannered, ornate, and highly cultivated prose of the sophists of the Second Sophistic, as we see, for example, in Plutarch. Even a Numenius, who is no sophist, really, 
is firmly in command of the technical idiom of philosophy, and he employs a large vocabulary and occasional flashes of, for want of a better word, poetic style. Like when he gets apophatic and starts talking about the nature of the good, he'll often um, shift into a more poetic syntax. Philo, too, can write an elegant Greek prose when he wants to. The Christian writings, by way of contrast, seem to be written by and for an audience completely lacking in Hellenic paideia, education. And so they were. One of the shocking things about Christianity as a social movement is that it really did embrace the outcasts of society. Women, slaves, the poor, the rejected. All of these could find salvation among the Christians. You can imagine how the Platonist intellectuals who opposed this movement saw this. A bunch of uneducated rabble claiming that they could just snap their fingers and be saved without having to climb the weary peaks of philosophic education and put in the real work of salvation. Get out of here. That's ridiculous, said the Platonists. But so it was. Now, for cultivated Christian Platonists like Clement, who did have paideia, there was a problem here. The metaphysical sophistication of the Gospels is zero. They say some vague stuff about the Spirit and the Logos, but that's it. So how do we find the Christian philosophy in these unpromising texts? Solution easy, esoteric hermeneutics. The Gospel writers did not simply write a straight texts, leaving the esoteric stuff for the oral paradosis. The texts of the Bible also have hidden levels of meaning. In fact, Clement outlines his hermeneutical methodology in many places in the Stromates. First of all, he gives us a four-level exegetical model, which is quite reminiscent of the more famous model we shall see in Origen in the 3rd century, made up of typological, symbolic, ethical, and prophetic levels of meaning. Quote, There are four ways in which we can receive the meaning of the law. It may present a type, it may show a symbol, it may lay down a precept for right conduct, it may pronounce a prophecy. I'm well aware that to make these distinctions and expound them is the work of a fully mature man. If you wish to hunt down the whole process of God's teaching, you must approach scripture with a more dialectical method to the best of your faculties. End of quote. So, again, all these levels are present in the text, but it takes a Christian of a certain level of development to see them all and read them properly. Now, the typological sort of reading, which we actually insert into the text here from a marginal note in the manuscript to make up the full four mentioned by Clement. This typological reading is tricky, but it's not esoteric. Similarly with the ethical, we read examples of, say, virtuous conduct by one of the Old Testament prophets or by Jesus, and we strive to act well like they do in the stories. So we learn our ethics from scripture in that way. But the symbolic level of interpretation is esoteric. This is, as Clement makes clear in Book 5, when the author of the scripture says one thing, but means something entirely different, which he indicates through a kind of hinting discourse, which only the initiates can decode, and which more often than not consists of Platonistic metaphysics. And prophetic. This is where the scriptures accurately predict future events, which Clement thinks they do all the time. This isn't exactly esoteric, but it does have an esoteric aspect to it in Clement's reading. And this is a fascinating dynamic whereby part of the decoding of exegesis of scripture often occurs through the passage of time and the fulfillment of prophecy. Time is interpretation. 
to a Christian. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. But anyway, since a huge number of old Hebrew passages are taken by Clement and other Christians as converging on the figure of the historical Jesus, he is like a master key, hermeneutically, to the whole of Old Testament prophecy. In other words, things that were revealed to the ancient Jews were esoteric at the time they were revealed, but their meaning has now been revealed by Jesus. They were all about Jesus. So as prophecies come true, the enigmas are solved. This quite amazing approach to the revelation of esoteric secrets is absolutely not found in traditional Middle Platonism, and really is a dynamic within Christian esotericism. Now, very interestingly, this approach to revelation still exists within Christianity and will also become very powerful in Islam when looking at the Qur'an and still remains to this day a principle of Qur'anic exegesis. Time is interpretation. However, I don't want to give the impression that this is unique to Clement, this approach to time and interpretation of prophecy. A passage from Tertullian, a roughly contemporary but much less interesting Christian thinker to Clement, combines both concepts we've just been discussing. Both the humbleness of scriptural style and the fact that it uses enigma and other modes of esoteric speech on the one hand, and these are, you know, very these truths are very grand and sort of transcend the seemingly low style of the text. So that on the one hand, and also the idea on the other hand that hermeneutics take place over time as prophecies come true. And in Tertullian, unsurprisingly, it's especially the coming of Christ, which is the perfect revelation of all those Old Testament prophecies. So let's look at this passage from Against Marcion, on whom, see episode 84 of the podcast, Tertullian is discussing Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 2 and 3, where Paul talks about the secret wisdom of God, which sort of predates the creation. So Tertullian is saying, what does he mean by the secret wisdom? Quote, This wisdom, which he says was kept secret, is that which has been in things foolish and little and dishonorable, which has also been hidden under figures, both allegories and enigmas, but was afterwards to be revealed in Christ, who was set for a light of the Gentiles. End of quote. So there you have it, esoteric wisdom expressed in a humble style, which hides deeper truths through enigmas, but which has also been revealed now that Christ has come. Of course, you still need to read these humble scriptures as enigmas in order to find the references to Christ, which may not be automatically clear. So the revelation is not a full disclosure, but rather a confirmation that whenever you read something that can be taken as referring to Christ in the Old Testament scriptures, it is referring to Christ. Clement himself loves the passage from the first letter to the Corinthians 13.12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And Raoul Mortley has an article devoted to Clement's reception of this wonderful line of scripture, a reception full of the rhetorics both of hiding and of revealing. I hope we've made clear an important point here. The reading of tradition which Clement uses is in its broad outlines comfortably describable as Middle Platonist. However, it has marked specifically Christian characteristics, which really are something new in the Greco-Roman world. So let's get a little more concrete now in the time left to us and give some examples of Clement's hermeneutics in action. How does Clement read the tradition? A particularly tasty bit of interpretation which caught our eye is found not in the Stromates, but in the Ecologi Propheticae. The Gnostic, we learn, has, quote, 
pitched his tent in El, that is, in God. End of quote. Now, how does Clement get to this bit of theological camping on the part of the Gnostic Christian? It begins with a creative exegesis of Psalms 18.2. He pitched his tent in the sun. So Clement moves from the Greek entohelio, in the sun, to entoel, on the basis of similarity of sound, probably the aspirate sound at the beginning of the helio no longer is pronounced by the first century, so in the second century it's probably pronounced something like elio, so then you go to el from that, right? This is a, just a simple similarity of pronunciation. Now, El or El is one of the many Hebrew names for God, one of the most common ones in the Old Testament, if not the most common. Clement then moves from Ento El in the El <laughs> to Ento Theo in the God on the basis of Mark 1534, Eli Eli, that is my God, my God. So Clement has a whole range of scripture available to him with absolutely no constraints presented by chronology or linguistic rules. Ancient Hebrew scriptures, the Psalms, translated into Greek can be read based on the mere similarity of sounds through the lens of the Gospel of Mark and inferences drawn based on theological assumptions that the sound el of course, can be used as an equivalent for the familiar Greek word theos, meaning God, to arrive at the conclusion that the Gnostic has pitched his tent in God, as the scriptures teach. So this is just one representative example of the way in which Clement reads. The truths of scripture are all talking to each other across any historical boundaries which we might wish to construct. There is a kind of historicity here, in the sense that the earlier Hebrew scriptures look to the later Greek New Testament writings for their explication, for their hermeneutic keys. But it's a very different sort of historicity than the kind we look for when approaching texts as historians. Another wonderful example of Clement's esoteric excavation of ancient Hebrew truth, this time approaching architecture as a text in a fascinating way, is his discussion of the Jewish tabernacle. This ancient Hebrew structure is described in Ezekiel 44.9 and 25-27. to And it is the place where the high priest hangs out and carries out the religious sacrifices central to Judaism in the days before they built the first temple at Jerusalem. So the, the Jews are wandering around in the desert and they have this giant tent structure and inside it is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the tabernacle. Now, the interpretation of the tabernacle in the Stromates is actually itself kind of scattered throughout books four and five. Clement's treatment here does not always go into exactly what is meant. Perhaps for reasons of initiated silence, Clement expecting his Gnostic readers to fill in some blanks as they read. We, however, are lucky in that Philo, especially in his On the Life of Moses, also interprets these passages from Ezekiel esoterically, and Clement is clearly drawing on Philo in his interpretation. So we can actually use Philo to fill in a few of the gaps in what Clement is saying. This exegesis in both Philo and Clement uses arithmology to the hilt. We can only get a little into the use Clement makes of number in this episode, but he refers explicitly three times in the Stromates to the esoteric truths hidden in numbers. 
which are described in one place as a Gnostic initiation, Mysterion Gnosticon. We are very much in the realm of numerological or arithmological speculation associated with the Neo-Pythagorean tradition. And for Clement, especially when he deals with the numbers 7, 8, and 10, we find a lot of cosmological doctrine, sometimes stated openly, but more often implied, which would seem to indicate, I reckon, that this Hellenistic cosmological stuff, which Clement takes for granted as an educated Platonist, seven planetary spheres, an eighth sphere, the Ogdoad, which is the sphere of the fixed stars, and borders on the immaterial realm, and the ninth realm, the immaterial realm being the Nous stroke world of forms stroke Logos, which Clement can also make into the tenth realm simply by counting the earth as one, and thus getting a satisfactorily Pythagorean sacred ten, which is where the soul achieves the highest gnosis, knowledge of the noetic archetypes of creation. So this is taking a bunch of um, different passages which we've listed in the works cited section to this episode and reading them all together to create a kind of arithmological, cosmological map of the, the sort of universe Clement thinks we're living in. Now, what about the tabernacle? The tabernacle is, in the scriptures, accessible only to the high priests of the Levite tribe. These are the Gnostic Christians for Clement. The Levites must propitiate God for seven days before approaching the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. In Clement, the soul of the Gnostic must pass through seven levels of purification, which are mapped onto the seven planetary spheres before achieving Gnosis in the eighth, the Ogdoad, which is, of course, the Holy of Holies discussed in Ezekiel. The sacred landscape on which this spiritual allegory plays out has become for Clement the Hellenistic cosmos familiar to our listeners, with its seven planetary spheres, the eighth of the fixed stars, and the immaterial realm beyond, which for Platonism is the divine noose or noetic world. Now, Clement doesn't come out and say that this is the noetic world. He leaves that to be drawn out of the text by the Gnostic reader, but we'll get to that in a moment. Now, the Jewish conception of propitiation, hilasmos in Greek, which is presumably ritual action on the part of the priests in the original meaning of the text, is equated or perhaps just associated by Clement with faith in the gospel and with the Christian idea of the restoration, the apocatastasis, which is... In normal Christian parlance, what happens to the world when God ends everything and restarts the cosmos in a perfected state at the end of days, but also has a personal element of redemption and salvation, which, as we shall see when we look at Clemens' angelology, is a highly speculative and esoteric aspect of his thought. This apocatastasis is a legit Christian term for the founding of the New Jerusalem, in other words, but also for Clement and later for Origen, has an esoteric meaning to do with the universal salvation of all beings as they evolve toward God over the course of eons of time. As we've mentioned earlier, there are suggestions in Clement that even those condemned to the fires of hell have the potential for being saved, and that's what we're talking about here. This is something that a lot of Christians, the vast majority of Christians in Clement's time and afterwards would not be happy with the idea of universal salvation, but Clement seems to be hinting at it here. In other words, Clement's interpretation here can be read by a proto-Orthodox reader, who isn't really, really scrutinizing the text too carefully, as a discussion of the end times, as laid out in the Apocalypse of John. Fantastic. But 
it can also be read by the Gnostic in the light of the oral teachings or a careful reading of the Excerpta or Eclogi of Clement, his other esoteric works, as a reference to angelomorphic transformations in future lives carried out over thousand-year cosmic cycles. We'll get back to that in a couple episodes' time. Now, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle is hidden by a veil, of course, and behind this veil is where the Hebrews keep the Ark of the Covenant. Clement emphasizes that the Ark behind the veil is hidden from the many, but he does not tell us what it symbolizes. If we read Philo, however, and we sort of think about our Hellenistic cosmology, we see that it must be the noetic realm, the immaterial world of forms lying behind physical reality, which is exactly what we expect to find beyond the Ogdoad in any Platonist cosmology. And this is where the Logos is for Clement. This is the world of forms, but it's also the hypercosmic Christ. This is where the high priest stroke Gnostic will end up, paradoxically filled with an insatiable contemplation of the ultimate immaterial beauty of the noetic world, or perhaps of God the Father himself. As we shall see in the next episode, the Gnostic can never truly reach God in his essence, but as we shall see in the episode after that, he can contemplate God face to face. It's all apophatic at this stage, and the only way to see what Clement means here is presumably to make the ascent yourself, since we are well beyond the realms where language is sufficient to describe what's going on. So Clement tells us, in other words, both that God is completely unknowable to humans and that the Gnostic human can stand face to face and look God in the eye. Um, you decide what that means. Now, what we've just gone through is just a taste of the kind of esoteric reading Clement applies to the descriptions of the tabernacle. For more on this reading, see the Stromates or some of the books listed in the bibliography to this episode. Itter, particularly, gives a detailed exegesis of Clement's detailed exegesis, which, while speculative, brings in a lot of the strands Clement is playing with. Arithmological, cosmological, Platonist metaphysical, and apocalyptical. We, however, must now move on to dun-dun-dun! The nature of Clement's esoteric teachings. In the first place, I think Clement is not so much hiding esoteric doctrines in the Stromates. Primarily, he's trying to maintain a distance between the kind of esoteric exegesis he's using and the casual reader, the casual Christian, the simplicior Christian. As we've seen not only with Clement, but with esoteric readers more generally in the course of the podcast, there really are no inherent rules or limits to interpretation. For Hellenistic Stoic readers like Cornutus, see episode 44, Greek mythological stories can be read as coded physical science textbooks. For a Platonist like Plutarch, the Egyptian myth of Isis and Osiris is an elaborate handbook of Platonist metaphysics. For a later Platonist, Homer can be a theologian, or as we shall see later in the podcast with Porphyry's commentary on the Homeric cave of the nymphs passage, Homer can be an astrologically informed metaphysician discussing the journey of the soul into and out of the body. For Clement, the ancient Hebrew scriptures can and do foretell the coming of Christ, and mosaic commandments about, say, not eating shellfish can be allegories of purifying the soul. But Clement is very harsh with contemporary Christians who read the scriptures in his eyes wrongly but using the very same methodology of finding esoteric meanings beneath the surface text to do so. These are, to name names, people like Basilides, people like the Valentinians, 
people like the Carpocratians, if we are to take the Marsaba letter as genuine, and many other groups of so-called Gnostics whom Clement attacks. What if someone, as many contemporary Christians did, notably the so-called Ophites, were to read the story of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis, such that the serpent is mankind's deliverer from a tyrannical and ignorant demiurge, aka the Hebrew god, who is trying to keep humanity in bondage through ignorance. The serpent, by giving gnosis of good and evil, frees humanity. Now for Clement, this is totally wrong. It's manifestly wrong. The God of the Old Testament, the God of Genesis, is the same God as the Christian God. But how does he know it's wrong? Well, I think there are two immediate answers which present themselves here. Our answer as scholars, or as outsiders, might be something like, he knows that this is wrong because he's been indoctrinated into the particular brand of Christian belief that he has been indoctrinated into. He's already made his mind up as to what the scripture has to say before he reads it. He then proceeds to twist it every which way through the wondrous power of esoteric hermeneutics to make it deliver a univocal, proto-Orthodox message. However, Clement would give a totally different answer to this question. He would say that his reading of scripture is actively guided by Christ, the Logos. Because Clement is a Gnostic, he cannot be led astray in his readings. But the danger is a non-Gnostic lacking this direct guidance, who picks up the scripture, looks for esoteric meanings, and is led astray. And he gives us many examples of these wrong readings throughout the Stromates. In other words, Clement argues that the Gnostics are led astray in their readings because they are not Gnostics, if that makes sense. The people that modern scholars often describe as Gnostic Christians, the demiurgic biblical traditions, are led astray because they are not guided by the Logos. So, this type of reading, Clement is very aware, is very dangerous in the wrong hands. And this is a kind of underlying dynamic to his theory of why esotericism is necessary, as we discussed last time. Thus, I would argue that it is chiefly the method of esoteric reading, which is the secret of the stromates, and Clement's other esoteric works, if we want to put it that way. There isn't really a secret in a public work, but insofar as there are secrets here, it's the method that is secret. It's the method that must be guarded from the unwise use to which it might be put. However, there are some pretty spicy secret or quasi-secret doctrines to be found hidden or rather scattered around the Stromates too. Now, obviously, we're entering into interpretive territory here of our own. Who's to say that the doctrines that I think are esoterically expressed in the Stromates are really esoteric doctrines. Not Clement, that's for sure. He will only scatter intriguing things here and there, and he leaves it up to us to figure out what might or might not be the more recondite material on our own. However, we do have the benefit of knowing a bit about what kind of stuff was being frowned upon in 2nd century Christianity more broadly, and we can see some of that in the Stromates. So this automatically becomes a likely candidate for a, a, an esoteric doctrine, right? In the broadest strokes, Christianity was tending toward a literalist reading of the book of Genesis in the second century. So, a creation ex nihilo, from nothing. And this model of creation was really an absurdity to Platonists or more philosophically educated people who had metaphysical reasons for thinking that the generation of the cosmos occurred through, let's call it, emanation rather than a strongly separated creator kind of just zapping everything into existence. 
and who, when they read the Genesis passage in parallel with Plato's Timaeus, had strong reasons for thinking that both matter, which is, of course, how Platonists tended to interpret Plato's receptacle in the Timaeus, both matter and immaterial forms must have pre-existed the material cosmos and were, as it were, the raw materials and the blueprint, respectively, which the creator God used in fashioning the cosmos. Now, Clement hints in Book 5 of the Stromates that matter may have existed eternally, although it's a very funny sort of existence, since matter for him is defined in a very Platonist way as lack of being or non-existence. But this, taken alongside the condemnation of Photius, which we saw two episodes ago, who read Clement's Lost outlines and specifically objected to his doctrine of matter as being unorthodox, this makes his ideas about matter and an atemporal creation stand out as a good candidate for an esoteric teaching to be found in the Stromates. So I think this rather philosophically informed cosmology and uh, story of the creation is definitely one of the things he's trying to keep out of the hands of casual readers. All of this stuff, needless to say, is to be found in the Genesis passages when read through the proper hermeneutic lens. It's just that the simpler Christians should not be led astray into, for example, the kind of strongly demiurgic type of cosmology which we find in the Valentinian uh, Gnosis, so-called, by applying these sorts of hermeneutics to Genesis without the guidance of the Logos. So Clement's philosophical understanding of the creation, or dare we say generation, of the world is a very strong candidate for an esoteric complex of teachings. And one, moreover, which fits quite well into what we know about the Alexandrian Jewish Hellenistic way of thinking. Mostly we know about this from Philo, but we know there were other authors and also teachers, Jewish Hellenes, in Alexandria. Another set of doctrines to do with universal salvation, the apocatastasis, and with cosmological teachings, ascent, and deification, are also, I think, pretty undeniably among Clement's esoteric doctrines in the Stromates. But these are so good that they need an episode all to themselves. So please join us for that. But before we get to the encounter of the Gnostic with God himself face to face, please do join us for the next episode where we discuss why that encounter is impossible. It only gets more esoteric from here, so stay esoteric. Esoteric.